Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Now we've got to unbrush people's brains and brainwash them in a different way to get them motivated again. Four. If there's ever a statue of Gavin Williamson, I'm prepared to pull it down. Three. I've let my wife cut my hair. It's a disaster, I can tell you. Two. There's a bar of outrage and it's getting lower and lower and ministers and everyone in public life are sort of limboing underneath it. <laughs> One. Welcome again to Planet Normal, the new Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Here we are, blast off number three. The Planet Normal rocket's picking up speed. And Houston, there's no problem at all. We're getting into our stride. Alison now knows what a podcast is. She's got a new microphone. She's even found the knob (laughs) for the volume. (laughs) Patronising or what, Halligan? <laughs> a huge response to your superb interview with Sir Richard Dearlove last week, Alison. The former head of MI6 talking about China's role in the origins of and response to coronavirus. It drove headlines literally around the world, not least on the front page of The Telegraph. Yes, it was extraordinary, Liam. As you say, headlines in Australia, America, all across Europe picked up. And I think this story is going to run and run, really, what Richard Dearlove called the engineered escapee. We even had some really interesting replies from former spooks. Yeah, I mean, watch this space. It was fantastic. And no shortage of subjects this week either. Now, your column in The Telegraph is focusing on schools this week, Alison, the fact that kids may not be going back even in September, Mm. according to our Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, making the UK pretty much an outlier in the Western world. It's a passionate, forthright piece. (laughs) Uh, We'll come back to that, though. Yeah, we will. Because we're going to talk initially about the Black Lives Matter protests, statues being ripped down, riots around the Cenotaph. What did you make of it all? Well, like you, Liam, I've got children in their teens and 20s and... It is the prerogative of the young to feel acutely about injustice. So I live with that every day, hearing their thoughts pouring forth, their heartfelt thoughts about racism. So while I celebrate their right to protest, I mean, at their age, I was outside the South African embassy shouting about apartheid. So I understand that impulse. But what really troubled me over the weekend was watching the police failing to police I think we were seeing a collapse of moral authority. In fact, we practically had the police, you know, holding the spray cans while the graffiti artists climbed up onto Churchill's uh, monument. And that did bother me. And we also saw in Bristol the wrenching down of the statue of Edward Colston, a slave trader, but also a philanthropist. And again, I personally 
would have Colston's statue removed and put in a museum, which feels like the right place for it. But seeing the police standing by while a huge act of criminal damage was going on was concerning. And we we saw the chief superintendent of Avon and Somerset Police basically saying, well, you know, we understand their rage and frustration. And if we'd got involved, it would only have kicked off more. I don't know what you think about that, Liam, but that's for me, that's not what the police are doing. They're not supposed to be endorsing the views of protesters and people doing criminal damage that they agree with. I think this protest is partly driven by lockdown fever. Everybody's been cooped up. But of course, it's also off the back of years of injustice I think the life chances of a lot of black youngsters in the UK have been pretty narrow for a long time. I think a lot of the life chances of a lot of white working class youngsters have been pretty narrow for a long time. I agree with you. I think the Colston statue should have been taken down. Of course, there's been a live debate about that in Bristol for a long time. It's been agreed by the council to change the plaque, but there's been arguments back and forth over the wording of that changed plaque. But you can't just allow a statue to be ripped down by a mob because that way madness lies. I mean, look, every time I'm, I'm uh, you know, from an Irish family, as you know, every time I walk past the House of Commons, that statue of Oliver Cromwell, mm. my stomach turns just a tiny bit. But on the other hand, for people in the British Parliament, people who've been here in this country for generations, Cromwell is, you know, in many ways, the the creator of that parliament. That's what the history shows to many Irish people. You know, he's he's a genocidal maniac. So people have different views about different statues. And that's the issue. Mm. I mean, look, there's a statue in Parliament Square, as you'll know, of, of Gandhi. Okay, now to many British Indians, Gandhi is the father of the independence of their nation. But a historian, a skilled historian, could easily state a case that Gandhi supported apartheid when he was writing in 1903. He wrote that white people should be the predominating race in South Africa. He said that black people are troublesome. So what happens if you get two British communities and they're fighting over Gandhi? I mean, that's crazy. But we've always had this a kind of tolerant tension, haven't we, in our country? So you talk about that Cromwell statue. Opposite Cromwell is Charles I, Yeah, you know, who was very much on the other side of the debate. And that's what we're like. Yeah, We have this useful tension, perhaps, between all these different things. And what I don't like is this importation of... American identity culture, which seems to be infiltrating into all our institutions. There's no doubt that the, I was going to say the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but, you know, let's be frank, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has gone very deep. America obviously has this, you know, incredible wound. It's a great wound of of America is slavery. And that's been working itself out and it's spread over here. And I do understand that. But I, I, I really don't like this aggressive cancel culture. So we're going to start off by taking down all the statues of slave traders. OK, so now they're saying William Gladstone's statue must come down because apparently William Gladstone's family had something to do with the slave traders. Now, Liam, you'll know that's that's just historically ignorant. I mean, Gladstone would have been a great guest on Planet Normal. I mean, 
Gladstone was known in his time as the People's William. Okay, he was an early support. Let's have Peel while we're at it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. So Gladstone was an early supporter of equality of opportunity, and now they're saying no, he doesn't pass muster. Nelson up on his column, I and mean, we're going to have people shinning up there to take him down. Where does it stop? I mean, you know, when is the book burning going to begin? We can trade all these names. Basically, anyone pre nineteen ninety six would not pass muster with, you know, the sort of righteous zealots of today. And that, that's what bothers me. I don't want our country sucked into this bitter identity politics. Our way has always been gentle tolerance. And I don't know if you saw in Whitehall that there were these young protesters and they were shouting at the police, please stop, don't shoot. And you thought... They were our coppers, you know, dressed as basically as traffic wardens with nothing to defend themselves. They can't shoot, Liam. They haven't got guns. That's I mean, right. that seems to be a fundamental difference between our policing and, and America's. That's right. And when the police turned up, they were actually in, in soft hats, weren't they, to start off with? Mm-hmm. What really worried me, that the really most concerning image to me was of a young protester, rioter, standing on the cenotaph trying to set light to the Union Jack. Yeah. Now, where does that end? The cenotaph to many, many British families of all colours and all ethnicities is the place that embodies the loss of their loved ones fighting in the various world wars. And iron- ironically, it was D-Day. Oh, so we had imagine these if now that incredible- flag had caught light. Mm. And there was a, a young man stand, on standing on a ledge trying to light the Union Jack aflame and a policeman was, wasn't was dragging him down, he was trying to talk him down. An incredible image as chaos is going on around the two of them. If that flame had lit, that would have incited violence because so many other people would have been so insulted by that. And that's the danger of fighting over these totems. Can we just say that there was a young black girl who... Pull that boy down. So she knew. She knew how bad yeah. that would look and indeed how how bad that would be. My concern was that the police had obviously been told to hold back and you can argue that that was right to go gently, but then there was really unpleasant violence. I saw a footage of a, a bike was thrown at a police horse. There were bottles and fireworks and flares And if you wanted to find out what was happening, you could turn the BBC news on on Sunday evening to hear that, and I quote, 27 police officers have been injured during largely peaceful anti-racist protests. Now, it's it's a kind of quite an interesting definition of um, largely peaceful when you've got police officers walking down the street with blood pouring out of their heads, don't you think? Titanic sinks on largely peaceful voyage. (laughs) Um, it, yes. it, look, yes. it's a very a hugely it's a very... successful maiden voyage, <laughs> apart from the iceberg. Exactly. It's 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 tough when you're the headline writer at that point, and that was clearly a mistake. But what I don't think was an honest mistake, what I think was actually a very very bad error of judgment, was when the BBC cropped a photo and they cropped it so one of the protesters who was bringing down a huge piece of wood on the head of some police, the piece of wood was cropped out. It didn't only tell not the whole story, it told the wrong story of that particular moment in the proceedings. And that was a real concern to me. Is that to do with the fact that the police and the government, large sections of the media, 
what they fear more than civil disorder is being found racist. So that's what seems to be driving this, is that on no account must we describe some of these people as thugs. But you can bet your bottom dollar, Liam, that if there are some white working class boys at the monuments this coming weekend and they're defending Winston Churchill, then they will be called far-right thugs. That's what they'll be called, okay? I'm not I'm not disputing whether they are thugs or not, but I am disputing the fact that people on the other side who are behaving violently and spitting at the police... I mean, we haven't even talked about the social distancing implications, have we? No. A friend said that some grandparents next door were visiting their family over the weekend. A neighbour sort of dobbed them in, and police turned up at the door and cautioned them and asked the grandparents to leave the garden because they had exceeded the six-person gathering rule. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Hyde Park, 15,000 people were very much exceeding the six-person gathering rule, but no one's supposed to mention that. If there's one law for one set of people, elderly grandparents, that law has to be applied yeah. to young protesters as well, yeah. or it's anarchy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We police by consent and what's been happening over the last week really brings that into jeopardy. And also, we are, as you say, a generally tolerant country. I mean, of course, there's discrimination. And of course, many people have the right to feel that they've been subject to injustice. But you you can't allow law and order to be reversed. You can't allow property to be destroyed we're going to talk a lot about this going forward, Alison, of course. We are. I think it will run and run. You mentioned the social distancing issue relating to the protests, and that was something that I discussed with our latest guest to Planet Normal, Professor Carol Sikora. Now, Carol Sikora is well known. He's one of the UK's leading oncologists. He's a practising medic. He's a health academic. He's often in the media talking about the NHS. He's got decades of experience in the service. And even though he's a cancer specialist, Alison, he's been outspoken about coronavirus. He's highlighted the impact on the nation's health in terms of other illnesses that aren't being picked up. And in his words, he's been dismayed at how this health emergency has been handled by both the government and the media. Professor Sikora says in particular, the system in place for recording deaths from coronavirus is woeful, in his words. He says it overstates the number of deaths from the virus. And I started the interview by asking him why. You can make what you want out of numbers all the time. The data collection in Britain is hampered by the fact that compared to other European countries, it's not really computerised. It's bits of paper changing hands. The registry of deaths, for example, uh, is just bits of paper. And at weekends and bank holidays, the bits of paper don't get transferred to the right offices, so they don't get counted. It's never had an integrated system. So something like death certification, it's just as it was 50 years ago almost when I was a houseman. And then, of course, you've got this complication about how deaths are recorded in terms of cause of death. I've been quite shocked reading what I've been reading as a non-specialist, that people are putting COVID on a death certificate, sometimes with no intervention from a trained medic. Yeah, absolutely. What's happening here is really a mirror image of what's happening in Germany, where to be certified the cause of death being due to COVID, the clinical team 
involved in the end-of-life care have to certify that that's what they believe happens from a clinical viewpoint. We don't have that here. Often at the beginning of this, doctors weren't available to certify death, so they were allowed to, to do it retrospectively down the phone, however they wanted to do it. And if there was any hint that it could have been COVID-related, that was it. It was a COVID death. The problem is it is affecting a whole strategy for, for getting out of lockdown now, because as long as you believe there are continuing deaths from COVID, if a significant proportion, you're very hesitant to come out of it. But if it's just mainly people that are going to die anyway because they're old and they're infirm, then we have to look at other ways to get society moving again. So it's really important we get a handle on the correct statistics as they happen. You know, we don't really want it to be that accidental events guide us what to do, but it's true. The weekend was a, a tremendous experiment. When you have the demonstrations going on, people are breaking the rules. Now we need to monitor what happens. And I suspect we're going to be okay. I have a, a good feeling about the fact that we won't come to any serious consequences in terms of the virus because of the weekend and the lack of social distancing that we saw. So I'm on the optimistic side. I always have been and probably always will be. I think there are others that would say, no, no, we have to wait for a vaccine. If we've got to wait for a vaccine, let me tell you, it's going to be a disaster. This vaccine is going to take a long time to prove. There are side effects with vaccines we don't know about. There's a whole anti-vaccine movement out there. We'll try and pick holes in it. Getting a population vaccinated is no mean feat. But you are expecting that um, there'll be a spike in other conditions that people presenting to NHS doctors and nurses because they haven't been going to hospitals in recent months because of the virus. Absolutely. And the three things that come to mind, uh, cancer, obviously, and to me, that's the most urgent one because cancer doesn't wait, it doesn't take holidays, making it more difficult, more expensive, more troublesome, more side effects, and the treatment less effective as it spreads around the body. The other disease is heart disease. These people need interventions. It may be stents, it may be valve replacement. And then the third thing where there's problems are mental health. Huge mental health problems caused by the lockdown, serious depression becoming even more serious. People with defined psychiatric problems such as schizophrenia and not getting their medication, not having any counselling, not being able to take part in group therapy. All these things are a relative disaster. And at the other end, you've got things that are important too, like hairdressing. I've let my wife cut my hair. It's a disaster, I can tell you. But, uh, you know, not that I've got much to cut. But We're it's, getting down uh, to the brass tacks now, the really important <laughs> issues of national exactly, debate. Exactly, exactly. On a serious note, would you argue, Carol, that more people have died from this lockdown in terms of mental health, in terms of people that haven't presented to the NHS, than have actually died from the disease itself? It could end up just like that. It could end up that more people have died because of lack of medical care, directly caused by the unavailability of it because facilities have been taken over for COVID. So if we look at it, the numbers, how many people have really died from COVID that wouldn't be dead at the end of the year? So the numbers vary enormously. The current ONS data suggests 60,000 people have died from COVID. I'm sure that's not really the case. It's because of the counting we discussed earlier. So what do you think it is? I think it's between twenty and 30,000. 
at the lower end of that too. And I think the only way we'll find out is in September when we look back and we compare this year's death, 2020, with 2019. And then we'll look at the difference. Sure, the deaths will be high in April and in May. They'll be much higher in June. They'll start coming down. And in fact, now they're below normal. They're below what you'd expect for the yearly average in the summer. And the reason for that is simply that many of the people, sadly, that would have died in June, July and August actually died during the peak of the pandemic. So the total numbers are what matters. And I suspect between 20 and 30,000 as we go forward by the end of it. What would you say to those who say, oh, yeah, Carol Sikora, very, very well-known oncologist, obviously a leading cancer specialist, but he doesn't know about viruses. I, I, I think they're quite right. I, what do I know? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I think the problem is that when you look at this, it doesn't really require specialist knowledge. You can look at it and you can look at the numbers and you can see for yourself. And the wonderful thing about information technology today, which wasn't there when I was a student half a century ago, is that it's all publicly available on your laptop, anywhere you are, on your phone, anywhere you like. And so you can see the data for yourself. So everyone's sort of an expert if you know what to look for. I mean, you, you've been getting involved in Twitter spats, haven't you, with Piers Morgan, the presenter of Good Morning Britain. You're, you're saying that you're frustrated people are being kept paralysed with fear. And he says that you're sugarcoating a crisis. So why are people being kept paralysed? What is it about the way this is being reported that you think is doing such damage? Part of it is the politicians. The politicians deliberately caused fear because they were worried about the peak coming and overwhelming the NHS. So that was justifiable to do that. But for the last month, there's been no justification for fear. And the psychology of mass indoctrination, if you like, is very, very powerful. And if you look at all the things that have happened in history, whether it was Julius Caesar, whether it was Hitler, it's all about brainwashing. Now we've got to unbrush people's brains or brainwash them in a different way to get them motivated again. The second thing is the media. Bad news sells papers. It always has done, always will do. And good news, no one's really interested in. It's nothing spectacular. Piers is an interesting, very intelligent, very aggressive interviewer. I think there's room for that sort of questioning. He's great with politicians and where it's a value judgment, it's a societal judgment. He's not querying the data. The data is what it is. Sure, you can interpret it in different ways, but you can see it there in front of you. There's no point getting aggressive with that. By all means, get aggressive to the decision makers. Stop this ridiculous quarantine. Speed up the opening of businesses to get society moving. But don't use your disastrous rhetoric on people that are trying to analyse data. They're the messenger, if you like. Don't shoot them. Professor Carol Sikora, Alison, speaking your kind of language, very much reflecting what you've written in your, your Telegraph column this week about schools. I absolutely love him, Liam. I mean, he has been a hero of lockdown. In the snarling bear pit of Twitter, there is Carol Sikora being courteous, positive, always saying we've had a bit of a setback today, but don't worry, the uh, fatalities are heading in the in the right direction and soon we can start opening up. And to me, he has a tremendous moral authority, which our political class has lacked. I mean, that was a wonderful interview with him, but in a very quiet way, he's just told you some extraordinary things, hasn't he? He said that our death data is collected on 
bits of paper while Germany's got, you know, computerized system. And that really matters because, you know, the usual elements are shouting, we've got the worst death toll in Europe, we're terrible. In fact, Carol Sikora is saying we may well have a death toll that's in the early 20,000s. Not only that, but that a lot of people who were going to die sadly in July and August have died already. So the death rates are now down to below normal. And, you know, we saw on Monday, there were no deaths limb in London. So I think what he's saying is that that this fear has been leveraged and has caused all these adverse effects, including parents being too scared to send their children to schools. It's really shocking when you highlighted that we can now, the, the rules for coroners have been changed, as I understand it, mm-hmm. that a non-medic can basically drive the decision about cause of death that appears on a coroner's certificate. And so... Da- down, down a phone, yeah, he me- said, down me- a phone. Many, many deaths will be ascribed to COVID, you know, with COVID, from COVID, when those people sadly would have died anyway. And that's the complete reverse to Germany, where the standards for the coroners are uh, apparently much higher. Well, we had a warning today from the NHS itself that the backlog of cases for treatment is going to be 10 million people. And that's what Carol Sikora joined Twitter for, was to warn that other serious diseases were being sidelined by the great COVID beast. And uh, Liam, I have to say, when we come to schools, I am absolutely fuming. And it's very, very lucky that you're sitting in your own home, not here, because the smoke <laughs> alarms would be going off. I've got smoke coming out of my ears. We're in the ludicrous situation where we know that children under 15, if they get COVID at all, they will be asymptomatic. And the World Health Organization said this week that asymptomatic people can hardly ever transmit the virus. So you've got all these children who are at no risk. You've got teachers in one of the lowest risk professions for COVID. And somehow we are going to be the last country in the world to open up our schools. If there's ever a statue of Gavin Williamson, I'm prepared to pull it down. I've said it now. I won't pull any other statues down, but Gavin Williamson, I would wrestle it to the ground and dump it in a sewer. So this useless education secretary. The government has set guidelines of two metres distancing, which are not followed by any other sensible country in the world. And that means teachers can't organise the classrooms to incorporate that. I personally don't think little children should should be subject to those insane, draconian, anti-social distancing measures. And so we are in this absolute fix now, where all the people who were shouting for the schools to be closed are now shouting for the schools to be open. 52% of primary schools are open in the country. Just 7% of all kids of school age are at school. And the real kind of body blow for me, just the day before we're recording this, is when the government has acknowledged, admitted, that even in September the schools may not go back. That's absolutely astonishing. And, And think of the impact of that, not just on kids' education, but also on the economy, on the education side. If they don't go back in September... Then you're going to have Sage saying, oh, it's coming into winter. There may be a second wave. Mm. They're not going to go back before Christmas. They're going to miss a whole year of school. It's the least advantaged kids who are going to suffer 
uh, from well, that. I was, I, I was, gonna, I was going to say to you, Liam, because I heard from one reader who said, you know, they'd been to a, a northern comprehensive and come from a, a poor home, and they knew how much education mattered. And yeah. and, and it, one of the things that brought us together for Planet Normal was that we had come from poorer homes without many books, if at all. You know, I think we had a couple of Reader's Digest condensed books and a, a gardening book. But millions of children from our kind of backgrounds, school is their everything. You know, school is their lifeline. You know, to not have education for six months, it's like cutting off their arms in the street. That's what I feel. And that's why I'm so angry that the government is still going on about cautious and safety. One reader said to me that she had two girls that she was having to leave at home because her husband and her needed to work. So you've got a 14-year-old girl and a 12-year-old girl on their own in a house doing inadequate schoolwork. How is that safer? How is that safer than letting them back in the classroom where no harm will come to them? The Telegraph had a headline this week, a child is four times more likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning than to get COVID and die in a school. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So you can take your kids to the zoo soon. You can take them to a (laughs) theme park and ride a roller coaster, but they can't go to school. But as Carol Sikora said very, very eloquently, politicians did this Project Fear brainwashing, didn't they? They did it very, very well. So now they have to unbrainwash to explain to people that when we said you're all going to die of this, actually quite a small, a relatively manageable number of people is going to die. And most of those people were going to die quite soon anyway. And I think why the government is so paralysed is because they are in this compassion Olympics, Liam. (laughs) Such is the fear of a Conservative government by appearing to do anything remotely conservative, you know, law and order, uh, high standards in education. Of course, the Tory government should be saying, you've got to get back to school. Instead of which, because of the Compassion Olympics, it's literally, you know, they're terrified of anybody saying one child got sick in, you know, in Salisbury. And this is where we are in our national debate. We have all the, most of the media, Planet Normal accepted, of course, most of the media hysterical, ready to pounce, waving around these terrifying figures when we know that the virus is on the way out now. We know there's no excuse for the schools not being open for every child. Australia is opening up, no social distancing measures, absolutely fine from August the 9th. All schools in Berlin will be open, no social distancing measures Everywhere we look, 32 European countries, schools open, no fuss. We are this sort of hysterical, lunatic country. And I I feel very betrayed by the government. I want to support the government, but at the moment I just feel betrayed and I think get your act together and sort this out because it is hugely important for children to be losing this education. Lead, lead. I mean, your 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 image of the sort of compassion Olympics. It's like mm-hmm. there's a bar of outrage, and it's getting lower and lower. And ministers and everyone in public life are sort of limboing underneath <laughs> it, desperate not to touch it because then they'll be zapped and and cancelled if they say or do anything that upsets people. Let's go on to some reader emails and, and, and comments just to finish. I wanted to mention something. It's sad, but it's also a bit of a celebration. I had uh, a couple of emails with Lynn from Liverpool and Tony from Ealing. 
They both emailed planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk because I tweeted about the sadness of the death of the fabulous TV actor Michael Angelis. Do you remember mm. Michael Angelis? Yeah, absolutely. There was a fabulous Lovely. obituary yeah. in the Telegraph. This is Lucian in the Liverbirds, the guy with the, the coat made out of his mm. pet rabbits. This, <laughs> But absolutely brilliantly, he was Chrissy Todd in Boys from the Black Stuff, that mm. amazing BBC Amazing. drama, the early 80s, unemployed guys on Merseyside, trying to get work laying tarmac. That was the BBC at its best. It absolutely was. And you know, there's a chamber of your heart, Liam, where the great TV lives and Edge of Darkness is in there. And, you know, Smiley's People is in there. But Boys from the Black Stuff, that great cry from Yossa Hughes, you know, guess a job, <sighs> guess a job, you know. And I can remember tears in my eyes. Makes you well up. And I think a lot of people will remember Michael amazingly fondly. So who who wrote to you, Alison, this week? I know you get hundreds of emails every week. They're all steaming, Liam. A guy called Seymour wrote saying, this country is sliding back to the 70s with strong unions and weak leadership. Boris is more Ted Heath than Winston Churchill. The police, the BBC, the media all colluding in bringing this country down as Boris helplessly stands by. And here's, here's another one. I have to say that most of us are appalled and embarrassed at the lack of guts shown by our so-called leadership over the weekend. I wasn't personally in central London with my colleagues when it kicked off, but I know many who were there. We all feel incredibly let down and horrified that the top brass are allowing this to happen. And that is from a serving Metropolitan Police Officer. He's shared his name with me, Liam, but I'm not going to share it with you because we want it to remain private. But but what what an indictment from the front line. I had Liz and she says, the TV news is so mawkish. Yes, each death is a loved member of a family, each mourned, but death is with us every day. I speak as a bereavement counsellor. I don't agree with some of the government's decisions, says Liz. I don't understand the timing and the reasoning. However, those of us on Planet Normal are seeking out our own information and making our own decisions and taking our own risks. Fantastic comment. I've got two here for you, Liam, for me, finally from me. One which I thought the um, the academic in you would enjoy. This is from David. <laughs> Future historians will be asked which quarter of 2020 they specialise in. <laughs> <laughs> Just, a, just, just, a, just as a sign of the of the of the apocalypse. History on speed. The, the, Ye- the, years of history happening in, in years weeks. Years of history happening in <laughs> half an hour. Probably we won't even know what's happening. Who was that guy who said it's the end of history? Francis Fukuyama. Yeah, How well, wrong yeah, can you he, be? He was. Yeah, he was. He was a bit previous, wasn't he? And this is my absolute. <laughs> this is my favourite comment of the week. And thanks to Charles Byford for this. Gavin Williamson should go back to selling fireplaces. Here, here. God. <laughs> Let's invite him onto Planet Normal. Oh. It's been fabulous um, bringing Planet Normal to you listeners over the last three weeks. We're delighted that you're so interested in what we have to say, giving us so many comments. We hope you enjoyed this latest trip. Do join us next week and every week and email us your thoughts on anything you like, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Just to say also that Louisa Wells, our fantastic producer, is there. If anyone like me didn't know what a podcast was, if you email uh, Planet Normal, <laughs> Louisa will wave her magic wand and somehow connect you to us. If you're not already a subscriber, you can get the first 30 days free. That's the Telegraph at telegraph.co.uk slash normal. And we'll put that link in the show notes on your podcast app. Also, I know we always say it, but please do write a short review on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. It really helps 
Uh, that's what normal Yorkshire bloke did for us last week. English mum, raver from Reading. Uh, they sound fun, don't they, Alison? They do, they do. <laughs> Thank you for all your kind words. And we want more people to join us on Planet Normal. So do leave those ratings and reviews because it really helps. And most importantly of all, please subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. So as we leave Planet Normal for the third time, speeding back to the mad world that is planet Earth, time for (laughs) re-entry, here comes the turbulence! Just to thank again our producer, Louisa Wells, our editor, Theo Leloudis. And until next Thursday, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 